We're in chapter 9 this week where we find a blind man who received physical sight and we find a sinner who received spiritual sight. Uh, it's two miracles but there's only one man. And it's one of the few miracles that John tells us about because unlike the other Gospels which tell more of the story of Jesus, John as we know is more focused on presenting the case for Jesus and the handful of miracles that he's included, which he calls signs, are specifically chosen to highlight things about the identity of Jesus, which is why when John tells us one of these stories, he usually completes it with something that Jesus taught relating to the, relating to the sign itself, as we'll, as we'll see a little later. So we're gonna read John chapter nine. It's quite a long passage, so rather than me read it all, um, to you and then read most of it again when I'm referring back to it later. Uh, I'd like to make my, my comments as we go through, if, if that's okay with you. Um, it will break up the flow of the story a little bit, so before I do the reading, I just want to very quickly um, give an overview of, of what happened. Uh, it's a story I think that we're all familiar with, but firstly, Jesus finds a man blind from birth and he heals him. Then we see a number of inquisitions, there's, um, there's four actually, by the man's neighbours and by the Pharisees. Partly because it was an amazing miracle, um, partly because it was done on the Sabbath, and also because, of course, the Pharisees used every opportunity to challenge whatever Jesus did or said. By the end of the inquisitions, um, they couldn't prove that the miracle didn't happen, but neither would they accept it as a sign that Jesus was anything special. The story concludes with the man, the man had been healed, uh, being excommunicated from the synagogue, but finding a new faith in Jesus. So that's the, the basic story. Um, let's read the chapter together. So we're reading from chapter nine, uh, and we're starting at verse one. As he went along. So this was uh, Jesus after he'd left the temple where he'd made that amazing proclamation that we read about in chapter eight uh, that we were thinking a few weeks ago when he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here we've got the light of the world going out from the temple into the world, where, back to verse one, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So this was Jewish thinking at the time, and it's, it, it, it's, uh, it's kind of like it was a strange um, um, type of thought that the rabbis, some of the rabbis at least, were teaching, that not only could a person um, be born with a disability as some kind of punishment for something that their parents had done, but they also believed that a person could commit sin in the womb, and therefore that they could then be punished um, in life after they were born. That's why the, express, the, the question was, who sinned this man or his parents that he was, that he was born blind? Clearly, if it was a, a punishment that possibly happened from the moment he was born, it was kind of pointing back to something he was being punished for before he was born. So it was kind of a, 
a weird um, thought. Um, and Jesus replied, uh, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I'll come back to that point, point later. Then Jesus said, verse four, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I think commentators generally prefer the interpretation um, here that the night that Jesus is referring to isn't a metaphor for some kind of spiritual darkness. Jesus is just saying that his mission, his time on earth was limited. And that suggests that he only saw himself in the role of being the light of the world for the duration of his life on earth. And perhaps that explains why Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 5 that they would be the light of the world. And that, of course, is a responsibility that we believe has been handed down to, to us, you and me. We are the light of the world. We have the responsibility of sharing the good news about Jesus. Verse six, after saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. John doesn't explain anything about the saliva or the mud or the pool or even why he chooses to translate the word Siloam. Uh, maybe it just appealed to John that Jesus was sending the man and it was a, a willingness to do what Jesus said that was the first step of faith which led to him being able to see again. Um, we could certainly um, see that in, in um, our own experience and the traditions of the gospel message, isn't it? People uh, respond to the word of the Lord Jesus and it's the first uh, step of faith. But if that's what John was getting at here, I think we can only speculate about that particular thing. Verse eight, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? So this was actually the first of the four inquisitions I mentioned, and it led to a division of opinion. Some, it says, claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to, the, to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Now, one little point I'd like to highlight here is that it just shows how little the man knew about Jesus at the start. Uh, he just referred to him as the man they call Jesus. He knew hardly anything about Jesus, just the name. But we're going to see how his understanding changes as we go through the passage. Verse 13. Um, so this is the second inquisition. They brought to the Pharisees a man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. 
Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And here, like with the man's neighbours, we get division. And sadly, that's one expectation that we can always have with the gospel, isn't it? And we've seen it in the earlier chapters of John, that the teachings of Jesus always cause division. There will always be some who believe and some who do not. Back to the passage. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. So this is the first, the third inquisition. Um, is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now? Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And now we've got the fourth inquisition. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I think they're the words that inspired the, um, the hymn that we, um, we referred to at the beginning. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You might notice a change of attack here. Verse 18 indicated that after speaking to his parents, they did now believe that the man had been born blind and therefore they knew that a miracle had been done. But they were so determined not to believe um, that they just moved on to question and attack his methods. They wanted to know more precisely how the miracle had been done, not because they wanted to understand it, but because they wanted to find fault. And perhaps there is just a little challenge for us here, not to question the work of God in other people or other Christian denominations, just because they don't follow our methods, methods that we would you know, um, perhaps not approve of. And I'm not saying that we, we ever do this uh, in our church, but I have heard over the years, and maybe you have too, um, in different places, a variety of criticisms against other churches and other Christians, um, things like, um, or oh, that church is only popular because they've got a great praise band, or um, because they don't expect much commitment in that church. It's uh, a phrase I heard once, it's Christianity light at that church. And I remember one time as a teenager, in response to a question about the size of other churches compared with ourselves. Someone said, um, well, Liverpool Football Club draws huge crowds, but that doesn't mean God is blessing them. And obviously that was true. 
Um, but it was intended as a slur on large churches, which do things differently to us, implying that their numerical growth had nothing to do with God's blessing. Uh, my point here is, and I'm not, I'm not going to labour this, it, it's just that we need to be very careful not to judge the methods of others. It's not hard to find churches who do things very differently to us and without clear justification from scripture. But that doesn't mean that God isn't just as pleased with their service as he is with ours, um, maybe even more so. So we should always keep an open mind on things like that. And what we get next um, in the passage, I think is quite amazing. And it, it reminds me of the time when Peter and John were being interrogated by the Jewish leaders. And you might remember the verse, um, Acts chapter four, verse 13. I, I remember um, Steve, I think, um, talking about this on, on more than one occasion. Uh, a wonderful verse. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The man in John chapter nine was just a beggar. He was blind from birth and he probably had no formal education. They didn't have, didn't have braille textbooks in those days. Uh, it's unlikely that he'd ever had an audience with the high and mighty religious leaders. And yet, verse 27, he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples also? And this must have rattled them because then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Well, case closed. Boom. <laughs> he turns, yeah, he turns the tables on them, doesn't he? Um, he goes on the attack and exposes the willfulness of their disbelief. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I said earlier that we can see the understanding of the man changing as we go through the passage and, and perhaps it's true of most conversions. At the beginning, um, verse 11, the man didn't know anything about Jesus. All he knew was the name. When we get to verse 17, he knew from experience that Jesus was kind and that he worked miracles and from the debate that he'd heard among the Pharisees he knew that the question of the identity of Jesus was a religious question and his conclusion was that Jesus was a prophet. Now perhaps there was a point 
in each of our conversions when we realized that Jesus was at least a good man and someone who, who God had sent. But in verse 27, we see that he worked out more than that. Jesus was someone to follow. And in the verses that we see um, after that, we see his conviction that Jesus was one, not a sinner. Two, that he was a, a godly person doing God's will. Three, that he was from God. And four, that he was enabled by God. Now that might not be a huge leap forward from where he was in verse 17 when he said he was a prophet, but I think we can see his understanding growing and definitely going in the, in the right direction. And then in verse 35, he hears the call to faith, doesn't he? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And his response in verse 38 was to believe and worship. So if this is the road to faith that some people follow, maybe many people, maybe most, um, I guess we should know how best to support them on that journey. The friends and neighbours and colleagues and other people that we, we come into um, contact with in our day-to-day -day lives. The journey, at least in this case, starts with the man realising his need. Um, not his full need of salvation, but at least he knew that he needed help. And he didn't have any of the pride and self-sufficiency barriers that often make people think that they're doing okay without religion, thank you very much. You know, the kind of, the kind of um, attitude. And perhaps if there was a reason for the man's disability, it was just that, to ensure that he'd have a humble heart and an open mind, unlike the Pharisees. I'm sure we know this very well already, but the people who are doing well in life and think that they've got everything sorted, they're the most difficult people to reach with the gospel, aren't they? And that's not to say that we write them off, of course, but we do need to ask God for a special wisdom to know how best to approach them. Um, personally, I try to use a combination of my lifestyle and an openness in conversation about the church stuff that I get up to in the hope that it will generate enough interest for friends to ask about my faith. And if they ask, that gives me permission, of course, doesn't it, to tell them about it. Um, there is a place for the direct approach, um, but it's far better if it's accompanied with a lifestyle that is portrayed as best as we're able, uh, as attractive and authentic. And actually the first experience that the blind man had of Jesus wasn't his teaching, was it? It was an aspect of his lifestyle, the character that he displayed every day. And by that, I mean, the man first learned a little more about Jesus when he experienced the love and the kindness of the one who reached out to heal him. We don't need miraculous powers to authenticate our message if the love and kindness of the Lord Jesus is displayed in our lives. And that needs to be shown unconditionally, doesn't it? It's not just a means of persuasion or coercion. Um, it should be shown unconditionally. If we walk the walk, then the truth of what we say we believe in will be more believable. 
But the journey wasn't complete until the question had been asked, do you believe? And it doesn't get any more direct than that, um, I think. When the opportunity is right, we should ask the question, um, what do you believe in? Do you believe in the claims and the message of Jesus? Um, and we need God's help to know how to ask that question in the right way and to know when is the right time to, to ask it. Now, I was going to say a little bit more about the last few verses, but as I went through my preparation, I kind of got sucked into the main story so much that um, I think my time is just about gone. So perhaps I'll say more about the remaining verses um, another time, a, a thought for the week, perhaps. But uh, for now, I'll, I, I will comment on them briefly. Um, and I think verses 39 to 41 are, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, they're typical of the style of John's gospel. He finishes the account of each of the few miracles that he's chosen with some sort of profound teaching, which he links to the sign. And the theme of this chapter is all about Jesus being the light of the world, the one who enables the spiritually blind to see. But let me just let me just read the last the last few verses. Jesus said, verse 39, for judgment, I've come into this world that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Quite simply, I think that Jesus was just saying that the Pharisees here were beyond helping because they didn't accept they were blind. They thought that they had spiritual insight. They thought they, they knew the, the truth. They were convicted about it. And so their minds were closed to anything else, even when the evidence was staring them in the face. In choosing not to believe, the ones who everyone thought could see spiritually were shown to be blind and therefore they were unable to accept the gospel and have their guilt removed. That's what I think verse 41 is saying. It's a bit of a, uh, it's not a straightforward verse, but I, I think that's what the verse is saying to us. And perhaps it's a similar point to the one I made earlier. That despite all that we think that we know already, when we come to God's word, we should always come with open eyes and minds, not just looking for the confirmations of the things that we do and think already, and there's, there's a lifestyle aspect to that and a religious prospect, um, practice uh, aspect, um, but we should come with a willingness to have our minds changed in whatever way God might show us.